One of the more popular questions you get as a Jewish educator is whether Jews believe in hell. A better way to put the question is whether Judaism has a concept of hell. Because what Judaism says and what Jews actually believe is often different. But the answer is yes. Sort of. It's not like in Christianity, with its detailed depictions of everlasting damnation hanging over everyone all their lives. To the extent that the Israelites, and then the ancient Jews, believed in heaven and hell, they didn't write much about it. The Hebrew Bible didn't flesh out ideas about heaven or hell in great detail. A lot of that stuff was developed by sages in the first few hundred years of the Common Era, and then again by the Jewish mystics in the Middle Ages. They often imagine hell as less a place of permanent exile and more akin to a purgatory, a place for your soul to spend up to a year in a holding pattern. You consider the sins you committed in life and work through the shame you incurred from your bad actions. Eventually, the purified parts of your soul will indeed ascend to heaven, which is known as the world to come. The word hell in English came to be associated with the Hebrew word Gehenna. Gehenna is less a state of being and more an actual, physical place in the world. It refers to an exact spot, the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside the walls of the old city in Jerusalem. How did this small, otherwise innocuous valley come to be associated with hell itself? And the answer is probably due to what happened there in ancient times. Child sacrifice. Gehenna, hell, is where some ancient Israelites, including the king named Manasseh, may have occasionally brought their children to be ritually murdered. The Hebrew Bible laments that Manasseh consigned his sons to the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. The prophet Jeremiah cursed the place as having been filled by the blood of the innocent. They have built shrines to Baal, he said, to put their children to the fire as burnt offerings to Baal. Which, Jeremiah noted, God had never commanded, never decreed, and which never came to my mind. This place, said God through Jeremiah, would henceforth be known as the Valley of Slaughter. Archaeologists have never found the remains of sacrificed children in the Valley of Hinnom, though there are ancient tombs there. But they have found child sacrifices at a few similar sites that date to the same time period in other parts of the Middle East, like Tunisia and Syria. These suggest that the biblical writers weren't making the story up. Gehenna, hell, is the place where children were sacrificed by pretty much the worst king in all of Jewish history. Yet King Manasseh also tees up one of the very best, his grandson, Josiah. So that's today's episode, A Tale of Two Kings. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. Before we get into just how bad Manasseh was, spare a thought for the situation the king found himself in. He inherited the throne from his father, Hezekiah, at the age of 12. It was a much diminished, much threatened throne. Assyria had conquered nearly all of Judah except for Jerusalem and its surroundings. More than that, the tiny mountain enclave was in the middle of back-and-forth warfare between Assyria and Egypt, either one of whom could be tempted to claim Judah as a prize. The economy was in shambles. The kingdom was paying a heavy tribute in gold and silver to the Assyrian king every year. If Manasseh's loyalty to Assyria as a conquered vassal state were to be in doubt, there was always the danger that the Assyrians would march right back to Judah to finish the job. 
All that responsibility, plus raging hormones and college applications, and it's a wonder that Manasseh was able to accomplish anything at all. But remember, for the biblical writers, the good kings are those who elevate Yahweh and forsake other gods. Bad kings are those who practice idolatry and paganism and diminish the sacred covenant between God and the people of Israel. In this respect, Manasseh was quite a terrible king. As we'll see in a bit, there was a reason why the biblical authors were so keen on Manasseh's wickedness. Now, Manasseh came to power after the death of his father Hezekiah sometime around 687 BCE, or perhaps a little bit earlier. The chronology is a little fuzzy. But he quickly began to dismantle the religious system that his father had put in place, and which had won Hezekiah the praise of the biblical authors. Hezekiah had centralized the worship of Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. He shut down local sanctuaries all over Judah and outlawed any form of idolatry. He pushed out the other gods being worshipped at the temple, ensuring that the Israelite national god was the sole focus of the nation's religious culture. Manasseh undid all of this. Indeed, Manasseh swung the entire religious cult of Israel over to the Assyrian sacred system. He reopened the local cultic shrines around Judah that Hezekiah had closed, decentralizing the worship of God from Jerusalem. Now, on the surface, this wasn't super horrible. After all, until Hezekiah, it was totally normal practice, and the people probably appreciated being able to access their local sanctuaries again. But the Book of King relates that Manasseh went beyond this. He did what was displeasing to the Lord, following the abhorrent practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. In other words, polytheism. Manasseh enthusiastically adopted the pagan gods, building altars to Baal and, most egregiously, erecting a statue of the goddess Asherah in the temple itself. He took up the Assyrian cult of magic and astrology, with its focus on the sun and stars and moon. The Bible accuses him of practicing soothsaying and divination, consulting with ghosts and spirits. He turned on any dissent, instituting a reign of terror, killing anyone who opposed his religious reforms. The rumor has long been that he had the prophet Isaiah murdered. We heard already that he turned to child sacrifice, including of his own son. Less than a mile from the commanding sacred heights of God's temple was the profane Valley of Hinnom, the hellscape of Gehenna, where amidst the screams and fires Manasseh had Israelite children sacrificed for the pagan gods. The big question is, why? There are four reasons why Manasseh may have been such a fanatic for Assyrian polytheism. One reason might be that he was forced to. Remember, Judah was now a vassal state of the Assyrians, all but totally conquered except for Jerusalem. We have records from the king of Assyria requiring Manasseh and other conquered kings to provide funds and materials for building projects in and around the Assyrian Empire. A lot of ancient cultures forced their religion on conquered subjects. But the problem here is that the Assyrians didn't. They were ruthless and ambitious, yes, but they weren't big on imposing their gods. Conquered states were pretty much free to continue worshipping whomever they pleased, and that included Judah, who had become a vassal state before Manasseh arrived on the scene. So the king wouldn't have had any coerced obligation to so fully embrace the Assyrian system. 
The second reason is that, well, maybe Manasseh just wanted to. Even if he didn't have to, there were benefits to adopting the Assyrian gods. For one thing, it made him look like a very loyal subject, which surely would have been helpful. It was also a smart geopolitical move. Hemmed in between the Assyrians to the east and the Egyptians to the west, it was a good idea to adopt, or at least make a show of adopting, the various gods of each superpower. Beyond that, there were also solid economic reasons. Reopening those local shrines boosted local economies. Given how much the country had been ravaged by the Assyrian military campaigns, this was a most welcome move from the king. As a vassal state, Judah enjoyed various privileges from its association with the Assyrian Empire, from trade preferences to funding for administrative and defensive construction. Manasseh is credited with reviving the Judean economy, saving the Israelites from the kind of economic disaster that could have accompanied their precarious geopolitical position. So, in that regard, he gets a lot of credit. The third reason is what the historian Mordechai Kogan says was the cultural assimilation taking place at the time. The Assyrians were the dominant and pervasive power throughout the Near East, and it was only natural that their culture and religion seep into everyone else's. Kogan writes that, considering the multifarious daily contact with the Assyrian administration and the mixed populations settled throughout the land, it would have been surprising indeed had Judahite culture not absorbed some of the signs of the dominant Assyrian culture. He cites an example from the city of Gezer, in which a record was found from the time of Manasseh relating to an Israelite farmer named Netanyahu. On the document selling a piece of land, Netanyahu used a personal seal decorated with an Assyrian lunar symbol. It was a clear indication of how the various symbols of Assyrian culture worked their way into everyday Judean life. Mordechai Kogan says that Manasseh's religious reforms were part of this. After all, he could say, Hey, we tried it my father's way. Hezekiah doubled down on the worship of Yahweh, and look how much good that did us. Mordechai Kogan writes that, Possibly Judah's sorry state throughout most of Manasseh's reign engendered a disenchantment with native Israelite traditions, which in turn abetted the assimilation of foreign ways. Yet there is a fourth reason, kind of superseding all the others. In this view, it wasn't the Assyrians who made Manasseh do it. It was the biblical writers. The people who wrote the section of the Bible concerned with Manasseh and the kings of Israel and Judah, they knew two things that Manasseh didn't. They knew that the next king, Josiah, would undo all of Manasseh's reforms in favor of once again centralizing worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And they knew that 50 years after Manasseh's reign, Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians, the temple destroyed. Every catastrophe requires an explanation. And think about the theology here. If your God is so powerful, how could you ever lose? If you have an eternal covenant, how could it fail? There must be a really good reason. And so we saw, for instance, that when the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in the year 720, it was cited as just punishment for the people's grievous sins against God. Idolatry, lust for wealth and power, forsaking the social justice imperatives of the covenant, all these reasons led God to send the Assyrians to vanquish the northern kingdom. The biblical writers knew that a similar fate was about to hit Judah and Jerusalem. 
This time it would be the Babylonians who sacked the city, exiled the king, destroyed the temple, and rend what thus far was the worst catastrophe in Israelite history. Something must have gone wrong. The writers pointed to Manasseh. It's not that they completely made up these stories about Manasseh. We have archaeological evidence that Manasseh was indeed engaged in polytheism, idolatry, even possibly child sacrifice. And the Israelites, as we've established, were also fairly into idolatry and worshipping other gods besides Yahweh. Instead, it's that the biblical writers embellished and enhanced Manasseh's sinfulness as being so awful that it brought about the later destruction of Jerusalem. And so the book of Kings records that God spoke through the prophets to deliver a harsh judgment. Because King Manasseh of Judah has done these abhorrent things, thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, I am going to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that both ears of everyone who hears about it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a dish and turns it upside down, and I will cast off the remnant of my own people and deliver them into the hands of their enemies. In other words, thanks to Manasseh and the Israelites following him into sin, this punishment is locked in. It can't be redeemed, even by the greatness of the next guy, Josiah. But technically, we don't know that yet, because the narrative hasn't caught up to that point. We're going to visit all this theology in a couple episodes. But for now, we have Manasseh, this terribly wicked king, worse than all the others. And he also has a distinction, by the way, of reigning the longest of any of the Davidic kings, even longer than David or Solomon, 55 years. But at long last, in 643 BCE, Manasseh died. Within two years, his son and successor was assassinated, and so Manasseh's real successor was his grandson, Josiah, who inherited the throne at the age of eight and ruled for the next 30 years. The Hebrew Bible is unequivocal in its praise of the new king. There was no king like him before who turned back to the Lord with all his heart and soul and might, in full accord with the teaching of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Josiah goes down as one of the greatest kings in Jewish history. He's part of a gang of four top guys, along with David, Solomon, and Hezekiah. And Josiah's praise is such that he's sometimes accorded an almost equal level with David. But unlike most of the kings we've been talking about these last few episodes, we have no evidence outside the Bible that Josiah ever existed. There's no records from either the Assyrians or the Egyptians, like there is for Manasseh and other kings. Archaeologists did find a ring that belonged to a man whom the Bible names as one of Josiah's top officials, but that's about it. Still, it's safe to assume that Josiah was indeed a real person. Why we don't have any records is probably due to the fact that Assyria and Egypt were very preoccupied at the moment. Josiah inherited a very different geopolitical situation than his grandfather Manasseh. When Manasseh came to the throne, the northern kingdom of Israel had recently fallen, Assyria sacked most of Judah, and what was left around Jerusalem was a vassal state. In the meantime, Assyria pursued a campaign against Egypt, eventually winning. But under Josiah, things changed dramatically in just a few years. The Assyrian Empire began to crumble, a world historical event with enormous implications for everyone at the time. 
As their power weakened, Egypt's increased, and Egypt began to push Assyria out of both Egypt and Canaan. For a brief moment, the kingdom of Israel was in a state of sort of suspended independence. Assyria was absent, but the Egyptians weren't yet on the march, and so Josiah had the unusual experience of ruling an essentially independent kingdom. Freed from any requirements to worship other gods, Josiah asserted Judah's independence by aggressively dismantling Manasseh's religious reforms. Idolatry was out, Yahweh was back in big time. The historian Thomas Romer cites the importance of the power vacuum created by Assyria's weakness. He writes that, In this context of the decline of Assyrian power, we may also assume that there was an attempt to centralize the religious cult, political power, and the structures of taxation. The sanctuaries were, after all, also responsible for levying taxes, and to bring them all under the direct control of Jerusalem. One way to think about this is that Josiah marked the high point in a broader Israelite change in religious attitudes, a change that would lead directly into Judaism in about a hundred years' time. The biblical scholar Ron Hendel calls it a redefinition of traditional culture. For centuries, the Israelite experience was what we call syncretic. It was a combination of various religious and cultural traditions. They had elements from the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, and others. A great example of this is the local shrines and temples that existed throughout both kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. For instance, we've got, of course, the temple in Jerusalem, but it wasn't the only game in town. A few episodes ago, we talked about how King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel had set up competing shrines at Dan and Bethel. As Ron Hendel points out, local shrines with altars, standing stones, and trees were a common phenomenon in West Semitic culture, probably going back to the Stone Age. These were, says Hendel, normal shrines in the Yahwistic cult. Some were devoted to Yahweh, others to Baal, others to other gods. Yet these shrines, which are called high places, became the chief targets of the prophets as illegitimate. We're not quite sure why. Hendel writes that a main factor was that these were cultic features shared with Israel's neighbors. A trait that is shared with non-Israelites is damned as foreign and illicit. The historian Karen Armstrong describes the focus on reducing the high places in favor of the temple in Jerusalem. Israel should have only one sanctuary, she writes, which could be closely supervised to prevent foreign accretions from creeping into the cult. And after the destruction of the Kingdom of Israel in 720 BCE, the Temple of Jerusalem was the only real candidate left to serve this centralizing function. So a lot of this was about eliminating foreign ideas and influences, because they were seen as corrupting the Israelite religion. Beyond that, Karen Armstrong talks about the influence of the time and place in which the Israelites of Josiah's era found themselves. Throughout the Near East, she says, people were obscurely aware that the old order was passing away. The experience of living in the new giant empires of Assyria and of its rising competitor Babylon had given the population a wider global perspective than ever before. Technology advance had also given them a greater control of their environment people could not see the world in the same way as their ancestors. Inevitably, their religious ideas changed too. Ron Hendel describes the process as doing away with the traditional forms of ritual to favor what he instead calls the primacy of individual ethics and interior piety. 
Israelite religion became more focused on one's interior devotion, which, as we'll see in the next episodes, altered their understanding and conception of the covenant. This more internal sense of religion gave rise to a more fundamental understanding of God as eternally one, with a capital O. Singular, transcendent, not dependent on or reflecting natural phenomenon, and wholly an expression of Israelite identity. And so in the view of the prophets, anything foreign, anything additional to that, threatened to corrupt the Israelite devotion to Yahweh. That's why the prophets hated the high places, and why those local altars became part of the tug of war between the religious reforms of Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah. The point of all this is that we're barreling down the road to Judaism. For centuries, we've had the prophets in both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, warning the people to drop the other gods and just worship Yahweh. It didn't usually work because the Israelite experience was, again, what we call syncretic. It was a combination of various religious and cultural traditions with elements from the Canaanites, Phoenicians, Assyrians, and others. Over time, this had developed into a sprawling religious infrastructure with lots of temples and shrines and the accompanying priests to administer them. Religion and politics were one and the same, all coalesced around the kings and their capitals, whether Jerusalem for Judah or Samaria for Israel. Yet by the time of Josiah's reign, in the early 600s BCE, a lot had changed. The kingdom of Israel had been destroyed a century before. Rabbi David Wolpe writes that the influx of refugees from Israel to the kingdom of Judah in the south made it necessary for the kings of Judah to push a program that would unify the two populations and create a common narrative. And that, he says, may be why the biblical writers frequently stigmatize the pagan cultic practices of the north and stress that Jerusalem alone had withstood the Assyrian onslaught. That, he says, explains Israel's embarrassing fall to Assyria while distinguishing the prominence and purity of Judahite religion. He cites an inscription that was found on a tomb dating to this era. Yahweh is the God of the whole country. The mountains of Judah belong to the God of Jerusalem. From that time on, writes the historian Thomas Romer, Yahweh became one God, not yet unique, but singular. Romer writes that even though Josiah's reforms weren't an immediate success, they did, he said, represent a crucial moment in the career of the God Yahweh together with the idea of the centrality of Jerusalem and the exclusive worship of Yahweh, they constitute one of the foundations on which Judaism was later to be constructed. The unity of Yahweh, the exclusive worship of Yahweh, and the centrality of Jerusalem. I'm not going to tell you that King Josiah was the first Jew, but it might also be fair to say that under his rule was the momentum of the great change that began Judaism. In the midst of his reign, King Josiah and his high priest, a man named Hilkiah, uncovered what was reportedly a long-lost book. 
Yet, lo and behold, contained the very same ideas that Josiah was putting forth in his package of religious reforms, lending an ancient legitimacy in the wisdom of his approach. What was this book? Was it really rediscovered, or did Josiah's men write it for him? And what does it have to do with Judaism and the Hebrew Bible? That's all for next time. As always, you can find me at jewoutonow.com, and my email is jewoutonowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mahitra out. See you later.